Father, you have kept us through the night, and we thank you for bringing us here to this moment. We confess that now, more than ever, we need to hear from you. We need you more than ever because we barely made it through last week. We aren't sure we'll make it through this next week. We need you more than ever because we thought we handled last week pretty well on our own. We didn't give you a second thought. But your grace overwhelms the weight of our sin and guilt. You alone forgive. Your power wipes the penalty of sin off the map. You alone are sovereign. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have come here to praise you. Please use your word once again to change our lives, to make us more like you. Would you do this for the sake of your steadfast love? Would you do this for the sake of your glory? We worship you, we love you, we rely on you. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in Psalm 6 this morning, and we're in day 3. We're in Psalm 6. What, what is happening to David here? Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Has, has David sinned? Is God sharpening the sword against him? Is God about to give him what he deserves for some nameless sin? Is God doing this to end David, or will he provide a way out? It's not a long shot to say that King David wrote this psalm while on the run. Uh, his own son, Absalom, was out to kill him. Absalom had usurped his king's, the, the king's throne, and he issued a bounty on his own father's head. Uh, David's wording here in Psalm 6, it matches what you would write and pray and plead to God if you were faced with devastating betrayal. Verse 2, there's intense physical pain. Verse 3, extreme pain of soul. The end of verse 3, rushed, unfinished thought. Verse 6, weariness, endless tears, sleepless nights. Verse 7, a growing inability to, to focus or concentrate because of grief. So Psalm 6 could very well be day 3 of David's exile. If you notice back in Psalm chapter three, we see a superscription that says this. It says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Psalm three, five tells us, I woke again for the Lord sustained me. King David's first morning journaling in exile became Psalm chapter three. The end of Psalm chapter four, David lets us know he survived the first full day. His second day in exile, and you survived the first full day. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And the next morning, Psalm chapter 5, David doesn't skip worship while running for his life. Verse 3 of chapter 5. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. And that night, while drafting Psalm 6, it's hitting David that this is all really happening to him. His son is not just out for his kingdom, Absalom is out for blood. The beginning of Psalm 6, David is in crisis. In the middle of Psalm 6, David experiences a short burst of clarity where he pleads with God to spare his life. And toward the end of Psalm 6, 
in verse 6, it hits him. He plunges into chaos. How, how could this have happened? Just, just last week, David would have stood dressed in kingly robes, overlooking the beauty of the royal grounds. He would have walked in soft leather sandals among blossoming trees. The wind would have been fragrant with oranges, jasmine, steady enough to keep back the sun's intensity. But last week is over. The wind has died down. The sun's fire stings. Chaos reigns. This week, David is barefoot and bleeding. This week, he is hunted in the desert. He's traded bright robes and open splendor for rocky crags and the dark. And there, there is no tangible help in sight. In human terms, there is no hope for him. All, all kingly perspective fades. But at the end of Psalm 6, in the face of, of the unknowable future and the unanswerable question of, of, Lord, how long? How long is this going to keep happening to me? David steals himself in the word of God. David's plea here in Psalm 6 happens both in the dark of night and in the soul's dark night. He pleads from a place of destitution. David, lacking, lacking everything, speaks to the one who lacks nothing. So this morning, let us consider David's questions, clarity, chaos, and faith from Psalm 6. Look in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? David asked for God's discipline to come from, from his gracious character, not from his anger. Uh, one, one Old Testament scholar said of this, the discipline of the Lord may be so harsh that he seems to be angry. It, it's hard enough for us to navigate our own pain. It was difficult for David to navigate his. And, and the question should be asked, did David deserve this? Maybe it was the consequences of his sin, playing catch up. After all, can't keep anything hidden from God. After all, the Bible is clear that our sins will find us out. Like, like all image bearers, though, David was both sinner and sufferer. He, he did cause injustice, but he also experienced injustice. And, and the two don't always go hand in hand. Uh, think about when, when David, David the giant slayer, was obedient to God. He was submissive to the authority that God had placed over him. And yet, yet David suffered at the hand of wild and raging King Saul who tried killing him. And, and in those moments, we, we don't point the finger at David and say, well, it's, it's probably because that time you played the wrong song on your harp, David. Should have picked a better song. Saul wanted like a, a Bach thing and you threw out some country music. Makes sense why he tried impaling you with that spear. Like, no, David suffered unjustly. He is saying in Psalm 6, God, I'm undergoing your discipline, but let it be the discipline of your grace. My own son is out to get me. 
His wrath is hot and his sword is sharp, but it's your grace, O God, that has brought me safe this far. So let it be your grace that brings me back to the throne. Um, I remember years ago reading from a a bad theologian who, who talked about the consequences of not seeking God's will in prayer before doing anything, like, like taking your next breath almost. He, he talked about how he went horseback riding one time and he hadn't prayed about it first. Okay? He actually fell off the horse and he, he broke his arm or, or leg or something. He falsely, he falsely attributed that, his broken bones, to a lack of prayer for guidance. Now, now some, of us, some of us here have a tendency to overthink stuff like this. Think, well, I, we are to pray without ceasing. So maybe, yeah, maybe that was since consequence to didn't pray. Uh, we, we overthink this stuff so much at times that we underthink what God's word has said. God, God is not playing smiting games with us. If you are in Christ, Jesus has faced all the punishment that you and I justly deserve. There's no wrath left. There's only loving discipline. There's only love and mercy from the Father further awaiting you. Now, if, if, you're, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, then, then we want to be clear here. It, it is the opposite for you. Your believing friends and family here pray that this changes for you. You are right now on the wrong side of the cross. There's only wrath awaiting you because your desire is, is for your way more than it is for God who created you. And Jesus has all authority over your life, whether you agree with that or not. You must stop playing games with the life that he has given to you. And, and the Bible says something incredible. It says that, that while we were still sinners, the wrong side of the cross, Christ died for us. We want you to be reconciled to this God. So don't deny him. He will forgive all the wrong that you have ever done. Back to the, to the Christian, the Christian who maybe, maybe you overthink stuff like this. Uh, some of you need to ask for, for supernatural help and aid from the Spirit to stop mentally punishing yourself for what God in his gospel has decisively removed from you. In other Psalms, there, there's, a, there's a clear confession of sin. We can look at Psalm 38. It actually begins word for word like Psalm 6. It says this, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. But then David goes on to confess sin. Psalm 51 also gives us a very clear confession of sin. But at the end of Psalm 6, where we are this morning, we see a confession of faith, not a confession of sin. We see a confession of David's faith that God will wipe out his enemies that are pursuing him. So verse, verses two and three, David is just, he's just totally worn out. His suffering has damaged his physical and spiritual condition in fleeing from his, from his own God-given kingdom. His whole identity as king has been upended. He is undergoing tremendous pain. And, and in verse three, we find what we never find in the Psalms. Fascinating. We find what we never find in, in the Psalms, and it's the unfinished phrase. But you, O Lord, how long? This, this unfinished phrase gets cut off by the question. How long? 
David can't even finish his own thoughts. How much longer must I endure this? How long will this dark night of the soul last? God, how long? Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said of this, he said, the psalm gives words to those who scarcely have the heart to pray. In times of immense sorrow, whether due to injustice caused against us or due to our own sin, it's in those times we often don't have too little to pray. It's that, it's that we're overwhelmed. We have too much to pray. The emotions flooding our minds escape logical thought. We feel scattered and unsure of what to pray. Oh Lord, how long? How long will I live under the weight of this burden? How long will I feel the pain of this loss? How long will I walk in confusion of whether this, this suffering in my life is, is because of loving discipline or divine wrath? How long will I trade eternal reward with temporary pleasure? How long will I have to live with this body that keeps breaking down on me? How long will my spouse keep hurting me? How long will I keep hurting my spouse? How long will I be alone? How long will my job keep grating at my soul? How long will I succumb to shortcuts in my work? How long will my friends and family keep rejecting the gospel? How long will I remain a bad witness to the very people I'm trying to reach? How long will my child resist the gospel? How long will I keep sinning against my child? How long will my weary life go on like this? Will there be a rest? Will there be comfort? Will I grow old and die with all this stress or will life actually change? Lord, how long? David's, David's inability to finish a statement leading to a question, that helps our hurting souls to finish our own thoughts. David's inability to finish a statement helps the hurting soul to finish its own thought. His, his incomplete thought and question then teaches us something amazing about the nature of God and how we approach God. David's weakness doesn't stand in the way of God. Rather, weakness is the way he stands before God. Amen. Clarity, verse 4 and 5. In, in the darkness of night, that is also David's dark night of the soul. But in his bleak suffering, he does have a moment of clarity here. David goes to God on the basis of God's character. He appeals to God's loving favor for the sake of his glory. Verse four, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, there, there are some commentators that seem to think David is a, a bit out of bounds for questioning uh, God here in, in verse five. You know, we, we could even look at it like, David, you're, you're making this a little awkward for my prayer life because I'm pretty sure God knows how the whole life and death thing works. Why, why am I having to pray the obvious? 
Reading verse five, it might seem similar to a child telling a parent that they know more than their parent. Uh, earlier this week, this, this happened in our household in a, in a moment of, of postgraduate hubris. Our daughter announced that she knew more than us. So for those of you that don't know, our daughter is in her postgraduate work. She graduated from preschool. She's on to the academic rigors of kindergarten, and, and she knows more than we do, right? So, so after some proper chastening, uh, my wife put her to a simple test, and she said, what's the, what's the freezing point of water? And our, our kid victoriously fired back without a, a blink or hesitation, when water freezes. Verse five, verse five is not an offering of childlike logic to God. It's not, it's not a, God, when water gets cold, it freezes, and when people die, they can't praise you. So get me out of this kind of a verse. Rather, in the middle of great sorrow, David, David has a moment of clarity. David gets back to the basics. Zoom out for just a second. This is a book of prayer and praise for God's people directed to God for God's glory. It is a prayer book. It is a praise book for God's people directed to God for God's glory. David pulls himself and his people back into reality 101. The, the sweet psalmist grounds our crisis of faith in elementary truths. At, at a most basic level, you and I are here in this present moment because God has made it so. In whatever crisis or dark night of the soul you and I are facing, right now, you are beholding God in his word. This is God's word to the perfect, not to the perfect and capable, but to the imperfect, the incomplete, the frail. This is God's word to you. And God has kept you to this very moment in order to live for him. God tells us elsewhere in his word, and you shall know, you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your sins. In this moment, when we see that we are alive and kept alive for the sake of steadfast love, we will do what, what the Psalter is designed to do in us. We will praise and glorify God even in our deepest pain. One theologian said of this, he said, when grace penetrates into the depth of an anguished soul, joy in the Lord anchors faith, which no one can remove. David's clarity moment, was a, it was a moment of glory. His prayer is, is this, I, I don't know how long this pain will last, but I am staking my claim here on glory, staking it on steadfast love. There, there is no one else capable of getting me out of this crisis except for God. So Lord, lead me, lead my soul out of death's valley and into paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Verses six through seven, chaos. David's unfinished thought leads to a question. He's brought into a moment of clarity. He knows that God and God alone can save. But then, but then, chaos takes over. And, and perhaps it dawned on David that God could in fact continue David's line through his wicked son, Absalom. 
Maybe this would be the end of David's life, out here hiding in the desert. Chaos grabbed onto David. God has saved me. God can save me. But will he save me this time? Verse six, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David's abilities have diminished. His eyes are grief-filled. Um, I've seen eyes wasted away by grief. Maybe you have too. Maybe for some of you that was this morning in the mirror. I've seen bloodshot eyes, and, and they weren't actually that, that clear to me because they weren't clear to me then. Uh, it, the whole conversation I had, there, there were tears just flooding in this man's eyes. But each of his eyes did communicate this to me. They had grown weak with grief. Uh, he, he handed me a piece of paper that had been shaking at his side, and it was a note for someone to read later. It was, it was a simple sketch of, of where the death would occur and included how it would occur and included when he had planned to end his life that week. He was grief-stricken. The crisis he faced, it, it just broke out into full-on chaos. So much so that his internal perspective was, was completely lost. When we spoke, it became evident that, that it was a friend of his who noticed that something was off and had urged him to go to talk with someone. His perspective was blurred, and it was only the perspective of his friend that helped save his life. Uh, his friend helped him choose to live to see another day. David's internal perspective here is lost. It's, it's like he had those horse blinders that they put on them uh, that they used to keep horses going in a specific direction. It blind, blind on the left, David's enemies, the, their closeness, their proximity had weakened his eyesight, his vision, and he's blind on the right. The grief's dark claw dimmed the light in his eye. So David's blinders now point him away from any sense of clarity he had and straight into chaos. Verse six says, every night I flood my bed with tears. Uh, there are several scholars who interpret this not actually as, as tears that are just on top of the bed, but rather as tears flooding from up under the bed. Literally, he causes his bed to float in his tears. Jim Hamilton translates verse 6, I cause my bed to swim the whole night. The message paraphrases verse 6 as, My bed has been floating 40 days and nights on the flood of my tears. David's insurmountable tragedies have produced enough tears to fill the ocean. Blinders on his left and right have the once mighty King David now, now sailing his bed on the high seas of chaos and, and into what felt like for him the floodwaters of God's wrath. David, David's felt reality gives weight to this ancient poetry. He is outnumbered. He is out of breath. There is no help coming. One scholar pastor said of this, verses six and seven, that they portray the emotional anatomy of all illness, groaning, 
crying, sleepless nights, outside attacks. What else can David do but call on the Lord? Questions, clarity, chaos, now faith. Look in verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. David, David trusts that he will be delivered based on the character and ability of God. Meaning, David believes that God's wisdom will shame God's enemies in God's time. David wept through chaos, and he also reflected through chaos while writing this psalm. His imagination had led him to, to setting sail in an ocean of sorrow, and now, very quickly, his God-given faith lifted him beyond the limits of human imagination. David stopped looking through the horse blinders that kept him fixated on physical circumstances alone. And his faith made him realize that he was not alone. In, in this miraculous moment, he began to look upward to the one who promised to one day make an end of both his sin and his suffering. At times, there is an abruptness to faith. Psalm, Psalm 6-7's darkness is overwhelming, making Psalm 6-8 come, come as a surprise ending. A second ago, David metaphorically was about to capsize and drown in his own tears, and now he's standing tall, telling his enemies that they're going to face all the shame David faces. How? Well, this is the abruptness of faith. This, this happens at the moment of salvation, and it happens throughout our sanctification. The wind blows where it will, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Abram, pagan man from a pagan land, becomes awake and alive to Yahweh. This, this is an abruptness of faith. Jonah preached the shortest possible sermon on repentance, and an entire nation experienced the abruptness of saving faith. C.S. Lewis was on a normal bus ride through town. He said he got on the bus, an atheist. By the time he got off the bus, he was a new creation in Christ. He, he did not slowly evolve into some sort of sophisticated theological position. It was abrupt. It was beyond the limits of human control. There's an abruptness to what the Bible tells us is saving faith. Second, at times, there can also be an abruptness to our our continued faith in Christ. Under the bush, Elijah was worn out and ready to die. He asked God to let him die. It just says that in the Bible. God, let me die. But God, who is the giver of faith, revived him and sent him on mission for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of his steadfast love. William Cooper, a writer of several classic hymns, suffered severe depression for most of his life. Even under attack, he would occasionally experience some, some reprieve. One hymn he wrote describes this. It says this, Sometimes a light surprises 
the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. And you, Christian, you have likely experienced this too. There, there are times, even while cast away on an ocean of sorrows, that, that it's God's gift of faith which reminds you of what it reminded Job. And you can say it in sincerity. Whatever, whatever the outcome of this, I know my Redeemer lives. It's, it's not that David's crushing sorrow just completely disappeared in his quick turn of words. He, he was still on ancient Israel's most wanted. Rather, his faith in God's power over evil lifted him to new heights of praise to God. Verse eight, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. David knew that the summation of his own life wasn't just his own life. He represented the people of God as their king. He was God's anointed with a specific promise that one day the true Messiah would come from his line. Earlier in verse four, when David cried out to God to turn and save him for the sake of his steadfast love, David was pleading with God to not forget this promise. He, he knew that even if it cost him, the ones who were out to kill God's anointed king would soon face the consequences. Verse nine, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. What, what is his plea? His plea was his request for favor, his request for steadfast love. It was his request for grace. The cry for healing and salvation has been accepted by the Lord. David is still on the run. He asked for God to do what only God can do, show David the favor of his steadfast love. David's God was and is the God who hears. Every unjust suffering, every night filled with weeping, God listens and God knows. Why? How? God is not like us. God never forgets to do what God has promised to do. And we might think, you know, well, that, that was David. <laughs> that was David. He clearly, clearly he had a strong faith. I feel like my faith is weak. I feel like I'm floundering. You know, I, I believe the gospel, but I have just been too beaten down by life. I, I don't get how some Christians can survive, let, let alone thrive. Years ago, I heard an analogy of our faith in Christ being like a, a bridge. Uh, some of us here have strong faith in Christ. When you walk across the bridge of Christ on toward eternity, you walk with confidence in him. You know the bridge will hold, and the bridge will hold you to the other side. What, what a gift. <laughs> Praise God for that. Now, now, to those of us who are weak in faith... You, you believe, you trust in Jesus because you, you dare not trust in yourself. But when you go across the bridge of Christ on toward eternity, you walk unsteady. You might even crawl. You're clinging to the sides all along the way. But either way, the bridge cannot collapse. Either way, whether you are strong in the faith or weak in the faith, 
The object of your faith does not go anywhere. A strong faith does not actually make the bridge any stronger. Your weak faith does not make the bridge any weaker. Whether you are strong or weak, it's the same bridge. Whether you're strong or weak, Jesus is the same Savior. Hurting Christian, God doesn't void your weak or unfinished prayers. How long? Because of, uh, because of the intensity of David's emotions, he simply could not complete his thought. It's, it's stunning then, it's stunning to me, uh, that, that God would take David's incomplete prayer and place it within his complete and infallible word. I hope that does something for you. Likewise, God places his hurting children's incomplete prayers within his unfailing care. During his last painful illness, John Calvin uttered no word of complaint, but raising his eyes heavenward, he would say and repeat in Latin, usqueco domine, say it over and over again. Lord, how long? Christian, your, your weak and unfinished prayers are not voided. But some prayers prayed will only be answered at the moment your faith has turned to sight. Hurting Christian, rescue is here, rescue is on the way, and God's enemies are shamed. In John chapter 12, uh, Jesus foreshadows his own death. He starts with this. Now is my soul troubled. Sound, sound familiar? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Psalm 6, my soul is greatly troubled. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. We can identify with this. Every Christian has prayed this, this prayer in some form or another. As David ran for his life, Jesus ran to his death. He all the more closely identifies with his suffering people. And he prays Psalm 6 like this. My soul is greatly troubled. Turn, O Lord, deliver not my life, but the life of my bride. Accomplish your purpose through my death. Trade my life for hers. Save your people for the sake of your steadfast love. And, and what Jesus set out to do, he accomplished. The Bible says that, that through his death and resurrection, our Savior abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And that the Father uh, in Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Shame is overturned. We've been forgiven in Christ. And for the sake of God's steadfast love, for the sake of God's own glory, he will one day come again. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we cry out to you. How long will this suffering last? Lord, how long will we go on seeing life 
only through our eyes and not yours. So Father, would you apply your powerful healing word to us for the sake of your steadfast love, for the sake of your name. Would you bring glory to yourself and return to us once again the joy of your salvation. We thank you for your word. We praise you. Amen.